Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes. Today I have with me David Hunt, and David has published a book called Girt Nation. It's volume three in his Unauthorized History of Australia. Good morning, David. G'day, Bede. How are you? Very good, thank you. And, well, thanks for coming along. Before we begin, I would like you to, first of all, tell us who you are. I've read your... Um, profile which if anyone wants to read it on the website you can have a look at that and um but there won't be a photo of david so you just have to take his word for it well that's your, um... that's lucky there's not a photo of me because nobody can dispute my claim that i'm an unusually tall and handsome man uh which is the bio i think that appears on my my first book perhaps as i've grown older and shorter my publishers uh ditched it now but um uh beat i'm an historian or a historian, depending on the way you like to use the English language. Uh, I'm an Australian historian and my Unauthorised History of Australia series, all of the books contain the word girt, which for foreign listeners uh, is, is, is a word in the Australian national anthem that means to surround or encircle. Uh, our home is girt by sea in Australia, according to our national anthem. And it's a ridiculous word that jars on the modern ear and school kids hate. And so that's why my first Australian history book was called Gert. Yes. Now we're up to volume three, which is what we're talking about today. Mm. Could you, first of all, let me know what inspired you to write these three volumes of Australian history? What were you trying to achieve by this project? Look, I was actually trying to avoid being a lawyer, uh, which is what I was doing before I started writing seriously. Um, and so there was there was sort of a desire to, to change my life, uh, a bit of a midlife crisis, if you like. But I was working on a sketch comedy show based on Australian history um, about 12 years ago. Uh, it never got made for good reason. And the, and the reason is that... You don't need to make sketch comedy about Australian history to make it funny, and that's what I came to realise. And so I suppose uh, the Gert books are, are, are accurate histories, but they attempt to broaden uh, history for a, for a wider audience than those who would normally read an Australian history book. And so humour is central to um, my telling of Australian history. So I want to give people a laugh, but I also want to give them a learn and um, to encourage people to learn more about Australia's 60,000 plus years of history. Mm. One thing I noticed when reading it and was actually apprehensive before I spoke with you is <laughs> having a conversation with you that doesn't just focus on the jokes because, of course, there are mm. jokes in there. Yeah. They're all, they seem to me to be jokes sort of in a sort of a in, in like a way that sometimes Woody Allen films used to have jokes in it. So there's actually a much more serious underlying story, but there's these little laughs yeah. here and there in between and you get to that you still get a good – you get history out of this book. Yeah. Look, uh, first, first and foremost, my books are histories. They are designed to help readers understand Australia 
today um, through an understanding of Australia's past. So there's a serious purpose for my books. Also, my the three books that I've done uh, sort of track from Aboriginal prehistory up until just after the Federation of Australia into a nation in 1901. And they're dealing with issues that today seem pretty dark. Uh, colonialism, um, the genocide of the Australian Aboriginal people, um, the role that women played in society and in the the 18th and 19th centuries. So, and and an Australian identity that was founded very deeply in in racism and fear of other people. So I deal with some dark material, and sometimes when you're dealing with dark material, humour is a useful vehicle for 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 telling a dark story. Mm. When I read the book, there were three. There seemed to be three or four consistent characters who moved through yep. it, and the narration followed them. Mm. Um, there was Alfred Deacon. Yep. There was, I suppose, to a lesser degree, Catherine Helen Spence. Yep. Um, and Banjo Patterson, Henry yep. Lawson, and Henry Lawson's mother, Louisa Lawson. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Look. What? What did you, how did you come across that? Well, is that are they the four, the five main people you you see when someone reads this book who take them through this journey, and why them? Yeah, look, one of the things that I've tried to do in this book more than in my first two is to hang the narrative um, on on the hooks of of some key characters of Australian history, and I do that because I'm writing for. Um, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm using literary techniques. It's literary nonfiction, where a character uh, people people respond well, I think, to character, and so telling Australia's history through the eyes of a number of key characters, I think, brings the reader closer to the action. Um, I chose those characters. Um, somebody like Deacon, who was Australia's second Prime Minister, and more than any other man, I think, um, more than any other person, formed the institutions of modern Australia and much of the character of modern Australia, politically speaking. I chose him because he appeared um, at a number of key points dealing with a number of key issues that I wanted to address. I chose Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, these sort of dueling bush poets uh, or, or dueling poets, because each of them presented a different idea of Australia through their writing, and they were competing views that were very influential in the forming of a national identity. Uh, Catherine Helen Spence, just because she was, I think, the greatest Australian uh, political and economic thinker of the 19th century and was hugely influential um, in establishing Australian institutions, and Louisa Lawson, Henry Lawson's mum, although she hated to be known as that, because she was the the editor uh, and founder of Australia's first feminist um, magazine, The Dawn, and she had a hard life as a woman in the colony of New South Wales. So you can view a number of the issues confronting Australian women um, through her lens. So they were a number of characters that crossed each other's paths at various times. Um, and I, I'd add Henry Parks into that mix as another central character, um, the father of Federation. But they are characters who I could build the narrative of Australian history around for the period mm. I was interested in. I'll come back to some of those people later on. First mm. question I wanted to ask, and it's just, I've just taken this out of a, it's, I think it's from the introduction. You have a section mm. on education and how the education system came to be established in mm. Australia. And I think one of the points you make is that this was a seismic shift in Australian life because children could stop working and start learning. Mm. And you talk about the state's role and the church's role and Henry Parks' mm. role in legislation. The mm. question I wanted to ask is, well, one, could be good to comment on that educational, what, what changed yeah. with that education? But secondly, with your book, 
do you see it as a springboard to spark curiosity in someone who's reading it and then go away and do deeper work or deeper fulfill their curiosity in other ways? Because that seems to be something in this book that really poses nice questions. Yeah, look, certainly, you know, I think my books are a gateway drug for for Australian history, that it's it's something that's accessible, but I'd encourage people who are interested in bits of the story that I tell to explore those ideas further in, in other people's works. If they get a taste for something like uh, the history of Australian education in, in, in my book, and, and it's something that is still with us today. Um, one of the major issues in Australian politics um, over the last, uh, since the 1960s, has really been what role should the state play in the regulation and funding of education? And between the 1880s, 1890s and the 1960s, government opted out of uh, funding religious or private institutions to provide education. There were religious and private schools, but parents who wanted to send their kids there had to pay for everything themselves. There was no state aid. And one of the seismic shifts in my book was the government moving away from an education system that had been built by originally the churches and a few private tutors into a state-based education system based on the Irish model, the most successful um, education system in the world in the 19th century, where the government basically said, we are going to set the rules for how our children are taught, how long they are taught for, and we are going to cut funding from private educators because we believe in the public importance of education. And that remained the case very strongly in Australia until Prime Minister Robert Menzies in the early 1960s decided that he would fund some Catholic schools in a bid to sort of strip the Catholic vote away from the Australian Labor Party. And since then, the Commonwealth Government and, and state governments have increasingly involved themselves in funding uh, and, and regulating private education in a way that they hadn't for, for almost a century before that. Another section of your book, and I've just lost my page here, but I'm trying to recall it off the top of my head. Mm. And this also is, I think I want you to comment on your approach to history here. You talk about Australia's first Saint Mary MacKillop, Saint Mary yeah. MacKillop, who was a, a nun. And when I was reading the, the section, it was informative, but one of the sort of, there seemed to be a big contrast between her life and how she was actually yeah. treated by men who were running the institution she was yeah. working for mm. and how now she's perceived by that same institution. institution. And it seems to be a romantic notion now, but a his the historic notion yeah. seems to be quite different. What do you what, what are you driving at there? Well, look, one of the major themes in the book is how women were trying to emerge from the private sphere in the 19th century into the public sphere, trying to leave the the kitchen, the laundry, and the bedroom and influence society more broadly through uh, public institutions, whether they be schools or churches or the employment sphere or or even in in, in politics. So um, a, a major theme of, of my book is is the attempt of women to unshackle themselves from the chains of sexism that, that bound them. And MacKillop's story is an interesting one because she was the first woman, she established the first religion religious institute in Australia, uh, um, now known as, as uh, the Sisters of St. Joseph, the, the Josephites, the Brown Joeys. She did so... Uh, I think she was one of the first women religious people in, in the whole Catholic Church to actually found an institution rather than just sort of join one established by a man. But what she did in Australia was was revolutionary. The, the archbishops and the bishops controlled all aspects of, of, of the church in Australia and 
and you know the diocese was the center of um, all uh, Catholic decision making and Mary McClip refused to be part of that diocesan system and refused to accept the authority of the male bishops in establishing schools first of all in South Australia and then throughout the the east coast of Australia and moving into a range of other social services she refused to do what the bishops told her and she actually ended up getting dispensation from Rome to run her own religious institute free of 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 diocesan control and so that was revolutionary um and she was excommunicated uh by bishop shield down in adelaide uh she was later stripped of leadership of her own order uh by cardinal moran moran up in in sydney because the church didn't like somebody who was not subject to their direct control um uh running running Catholic services. So she was a real independent, um, powerful, committed figure who at the time was not supported by the churchmen in Australia. Um, but she is now Australia's patron saint. So I think we've come a long way to accepting the importance to her of her, not just to our history, but to our spiritual identity. Mm. Another, um, before we, as a, someone who approaches your work, where on the historical spectrum from left to right would you position this book? Uh, look, I, it, it's, it's an interesting question because there is a view that history and historians should be apolitical and should be neutral. I haven't met a historian who who is that. I've met some who purport to be that. Um, I, I would put my politics at um, left of centre, um, but also I think partly through writing this book, my appreciation of classical liberalism has, has grown because Deacon, who was a classical liberal in the 19th century mould, um, I think was Australia's greatest statesperson. Um, and so on, on, on social issues, I would be uh, left um, of, of centre um, but with a healthy dose of, of liberal individualism thrown in for good measure, I think. Mm. Is it hard and, and my when... history, my history reflects that, because at the time that was a dominant school of Australian politics, and so the competition that the rise of the Labor Party posed for sort of classical 19th century liberalism is one of the, the themes that I explore in the book as well. Mm. And David, how with a, a book like this, it, um, when I first read, that, read it, I, I, one comparison came to mind was Bill Bryson, just as yeah. a sort of a funny book. But I realised sort of more than that because one thing that you managed to avoid, or at least when maybe I'm reading it with with a, my own prejudices, but one thing that seemed to me you managed to avoid was it becoming a polemic because I can imagine if you're writing comedy, it's very easy just to yeah. slam these jokes home, home, home. It's harder to keep a balance in the book. So it's almost like you set yourself two hurdles, one to write history, secondly to make yeah. it funny without bombarding yeah. people with your view for the joke. How did you manage that? Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think I managed it better than I did in my second book, True Gert, where the blackness of uh, colonial and Aboriginal relations, I think, probably just took it a little bit too dark and that perhaps made the moments of humour seem a little bit, bit odder. I think, I think I've struck a better balance in this book. Um, on the Bryson front, I think A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson is is my favourite non-fiction book. Um, Mother Tongue. In fact, look, I think Bryson is 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 a brilliant is a brilliant writer and a brilliant communicator. 
and I have consciously adopted um, elements of his approach, but also the approach of fiction writers such as Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett, um, who can see the absurdity in serious issues, um, even even perhaps a little bit of Jonathan Swift in, in Gulliver's Travels. Um, so the... The point is is to tell a history and to make it funny, um, and the jokes have got to serve the history. So it's not a, a joke book. It's not a, a – the rule is that all of the facts have got to be accurate or have to be clearly the author's stated opinion. So there's no telling a porky for the sake of making a good joke, and that's a very – very firm rule that I have that if there's a fact in the book, it's a fact. The interpretation I place on it may be different to your interpretation or another person's interpretation, but the but the facts themselves are accurate. And so I think that if you apply that rule that the history comes first, the history has to be accurate and the jokes have to serve the history, you sort of, I think after three books, I've probably found the right balance. Mm. Um, one thing or a balance that I'm happy through. with. <laughs> yeah, well, no, yeah. Um, I think it's good, and in that sense, and one thing I did like about it was a lot of the, a lot of the, the sort of, I suppose you call them. I mean, they are meant to be funny. I imagine people, they're meant to be humorous. Are in the footnotes as well. You have these sort of yeah. I, I love the, like the footnote about the Galar and Home and Away, and then you have there's, there's yeah. one, any number of them. But they seem to be positioned. It seems like you've actually given a lot of thought to whether something goes into the narrative proper or yeah. into a footnote. Yeah. So when I was writing Gert, the first book, what I wanted to do was write an Australian history that was also, in some ways, a satire of history books. And the most boring bits of any history book are inevitably the footnotes. And so somebody like Terry Pratchett and to a lesser degree Bill Bryson actually put the juiciest facts in there or, or, or they both put juicy asides in their footnotes. Um, and so I realised that a footnote was a way for me to riff off the main narrative in a way that if it was, if it appeared in the, the main text itself, it would distract from the main story. But it enables me to past comment, make a, a, you know, an observation I want to make or just tell a joke. Um, uh, and in that sense, I think the footnotes, lots of people say the footnotes are the best bits of the book. Um, and I do certainly spend a lot of time working out what goes in the main narrative and what are the things that I would like to sort of riff on separately that the reader can dip into and out of according to their their whim? Yeah. Next thing I'd like to raise is racism in Australia. And yeah. the book is um, – the book is – well, one thing I shouldn't say, what, I've been doing this, these podcasts for a while and I do a fair few on Australian history – and yep. it seems that a lot of historians now are really trying to make it clear to their readers that racism isn't something you hear about from America or anything like that. It was actually a real, not, not just a hidden part of Australian life, but a really public part of Australian life for a long yep. time. So the great magazines like the Bulletin or the hmm. um, Brunton Stevens and his poem and how hmm. it's, he had said such horrible things about people, but it's it's just yeah. hidden somehow. Rather, it's never come out in our history. Do you think that's how do you think that will play out over the next, say, the next decade or so? That realization well, that historians are making. Uh, yeah, look, I've well, I I think I think it, historians have always realized it, and there's been a desire since I think probably the 1950s, um, through people who are not historians to deliberately tamp down on that aspect of our past, um, erase it, deny it. Um, and if you look at the way that the Australian colonies federated into Australia, the major unifying theme for 
really all of the political groupings at the time was the idea of a white Australia. Uh, in Australia, we know a little bit about the white Australia policy that was effectively from 1901 and, uh, to was an immigration restriction policy that was not explicitly based on race because the British Empire, of which we were a part, insisted that people from India should be able to travel to Britain or Australia or New Zealand or Canada or any other part of the empire. Um, but it was a policy that applied a dictation test to immigration and it was only ever applied to, in inverted commas, coloured people. And if you're a coloured person trying to get into Australia, you could be asked to um, dictate a, a passage of 50 words or more in any language of the immigration official's own choosing. So if you happen to be coming from China, which was the main source for Australian angst at the time, you could be asked to sit a dictation test in Finnish or Estonian or later on when it was broadened beyond European languages, Swahili. Um, and the, 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 the naked sort of obfuscation and hypocrisy of that policy was done to appease Britain. But the dominant view in Australia was that we should be open about our desire to keep Australia white. Um, uh, the South African colonies picked up many of the legislative tools we used in, in forging the apartheid regime that followed in the in the 1910s and, and thereafter. Um, and we were perhaps the most insular, most racist community on the world when it came to racial purity. Um, and that is something that historians know and Australian school kids might learn a little bit about the white Australia policy, but they don't appreciate how deeply ingrained that racism was in every aspect of daily life and how it was just accepted as the norm. And when you can buy the White Australia board game to play with your family uh, after dinner, where the object of the game is to move the white men in and the coloured men out, um, you, get, you get a real appreciation for how deeply ingrained racism was in every aspect of Australian life. And there's been a lot of attempts by politicians today to deny that and to say that Australia has always treated people equally and fairly. And and history in this book will very clearly show that that is absolutely 100% not the case. Mm. Well, that's true. Then the book also moves into, there's a, there's a lot written about women's movements in relation mm -hmm. to voting, in relation to temperance, yep. in relation to purity societies, all these types of yep. things. Can you explain the um can you talk a little bit about that section of the book and what you thought yeah. is important about that what was important about australia was it was actually i think the the hotbed for many feminist and women's reform movements in the 19th century uh, we outstripped the United States and Britain and, and, and continental Europe in the way that women received rights, not just in terms of the right to vote, but the rights of married women to own property. Um, uh, divorce rights were more liberal. So when, when the Australian, when, when the convict colony of New South Wales was established, there was a seven to one male to female ratio at the time. Women became incredibly valuable, in inverted commas, commodities. Um, and women had a series of rights in the Australian colonies that they didn't enjoy anywhere else in the world, often because their husbands were still serving criminal sentences. And so property vested in women in a way that it didn't back in Britain. And women had a number of political advantages that saw them um, come to the fore in public life quicker in Australia than they did in many other parts, well, pretty much anywhere else in the world. And so this, this book explores the rise of women in public life 
the rise of women, the right to vote, and South Australia in 1894 became the first place in the world to allow women to run for parliament. Uh, that is full, the full female franchise, uh, which was was picked up in in Australia more broadly, uh, or the Commonwealth of Australia in 1902. So. Um, you know, those sorts of things didn't happen in, in Britain and America for, for decades and in places like Switzerland, I think, until the 1980s. So um, one of the, I think, successes in Australian history is the embrace of democratic reforms uh, for men and women. Uh, Australians invented the modern secret ballot that is used around the world today. Um they embraced the Chartist movement sort of formed in England, the democratic movement in a way that wasn't embraced in England. Um, and they embraced or accepted women's rights in, 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 in a very progressive way. And so that's one of the successes of Australian history. And I, I tell that story in this book as well. Mm. Another social cause that you also mentioned are workers' rights mm. and the growth of the union movement in Australia. One thing yeah. I noticed in the book is there seems to be a situation where you have the, the trade unions trying to be established and they, mm. and then you also have women who are trying to be progressive. And sometimes you have these two causes that in one sense you, sh- you would think would both be united against sort of a capital yeah. system but they seem yeah. to fight each other. They don't, they don't tolerate it. Or the women seem to even get pushed around by the unions. And how do you there's, explain there's, a phenomenon like that? Yeah, look, the, the, the people that the Taylors Union hated most of all were the Tayloresses, really. So the labour movement, Australia was the first place in the world to have a, a, a labour government in in. Queensland in 1896. Um, it only lasted six days, but still, Labor parties, parties based on the idea of organised labour, formed in Australia and came to power in Australia quicker than anywhere else in the world. I mean, Karl Marx saw Australia as as the place where the workers' revolution would would bear first fruit, um, and so the labour movement rapidly. Um, becomes politically powerful in the 1970s and the ni- 1870s and 1880s, but realizes in the 1880s that it can't compete with the established political interests, um, with the Shearer strikes um, that were, were crushed, uh, the the mining strikes, the shipping strikes that were all crushed in the 1880s and 1890s, that they needed to organise politically, not just in the workplace, if they were to progress workers' rights. And so the Labor Party or the Labor Parties that sprang up in the colonies sprang out of the recognition of the trade unions that they needed to organise at the ballot box. And... They, they became rapidly very powerful. At the same time, women were trying to emerge from the private sphere into a broader range of workplaces. Um, and men were not only concerned about Chinese people, Pacific Islanders, and others coming to Australia and taking their jobs and lowering their wages and conditions. They were worried that women we're going to take their jobs and lower their wages and conditions. So there's this tension within the union movement. Um, Australia's first Labor Prime Minister, um, uh, Chris Watson, um, was a worked in a typesetting, a printers, a printers union, and he persecuted Louisa Lawson for employing female typesetters. His union wouldn't accept women in the job and they tried to drive anybody who employed women out of business. And so you have Labor trying to really preserve a male workforce in many areas, although there was accommodation with some of the female unions and there were some joint efforts, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of tension between um, 
men who who wanted to enter politics and to preserve male employment rights and women who wanted to advance women's employment rights. Men often saw those rights coming at the expense of their own. Hmm. Um, to slightly shift topic, I've only got a, haven't got too much longer left with you, David, but the couple of questions I want to ask is Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, two Australian well, poets and, and short story yep. writers, come up in this book a fair bit. I didn't get the impression that you thought Banjo Patterson was a particularly good poet. And oh, no, no. You, no, I, was I, say, he was I think he was a social commentary. Look, I think he was a good poet. Um, I, I think he was he was a poet who, more than any other, more, more than any other person in Australia, created this sort of bush myth that Australians mm. were a nation of sort of happy-go-lucky, lucky itinerant shearers and and bushmen. Uh, and the as as Australians were looking for a sense of national identity, uh, something that brought them together, they were they were really drawn uh, by, you know, into Patterson's vision of this sort of bush people. So, you know, you could be he was a city lawyer, um, mm. and and Australia was at the time the most urbanised. The Australian colonies were the most urbanised societies on earth, um, and yet. This bush myth um, uh, held sway, and Patterson more than any other advanced that. Um, but he, his first poem was unabashedly political, uh, where it was a poem against the uh, New South Wales involvement in the Sudan War in 1885. And he actually wrote as El Mahdi, the sort of hardcore Islamist cleric who had beheaded General Gordon on the steps of the Palace of Khartoum, El, Do- El Mahdi to the Australian troops. He And he calls on God and the Prophet to sweep the Australian forces out of the Sudan like sand before the gale. And so, you know, that was a serious bit of political poetry. Um, but he soon realised that being Australia's leading jihadist poet was probably not a good career move. And so starts writing about horse racing and from horse racing, bush poetry. And most of his poetry afterwards, whilst written in a distinctly Australian voice, and that was important, he was the first poet to really nail an idiom separate from from the British influence poets that preceded him. Important in that respect, but his subject matter became pretty anodyne, whilst Henry Lawson, Mm -hmm. who I think is a better poet and a better writer, um, was deeply political, sad and tragic throughout his life. And he wrote poems um, that dismissed the bush myth and said the bush was a horrid, hard, hideous, sandy hell. Um, and he hated being called a bush poet because he didn't like the bush very much. He was really a labour poet. He was a he was a, a social reformist poet. Um, and some of his poetry is incredibly powerful, and some of his personal poetry is just incredibly sad. So, I think they're both very, very capable and competent poets. Patterson's influence at the time was was the greater, uh, but I think Lawson had more depth and 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 more range. Mm. With Henry Lawson, from my memory, the, your book mentions Drover's wife, one of his. Um, mm. Is it Drover's wife? One of his short stories. Yeah, the Drover's wife. Um, yeah. The, it it doesn't. I don't recall it mentioning a lot of his short stories. I always thought his short stories were exemplar yeah. short stories. Is there a reason for that? Like the Union buries its yeah, dead look, stories like that. So. One of the things that I was particularly interested in doing, and and the book actually has quite a lot of Australian poetry in it, including poetry that predates Patterson and Lawson, because I, I discovered that you could tell a lot about a, a sense of self, sense of identity through through the works of these poets, and what people were drawn to um, gave a real sense of where Australia was going. So poetry is very important. In, in the book. Um, yes, um, I, I acknowledge some of his short stories. One of the interesting things about The Drover's Wife 
um, is it was largely modelled on the experiences of his mother um, uh, in country New South Wales when he was a child. And the the scene at the end of that story of the black snake, the black snake being mm. beaten with a stick and 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 burnt on a fire, was actually an incident from his mother's childhood, where she found a, a black snake at the bush shrine that she used to visit and and killed it and burnt it on a fire. So he was something of a magpie when it came to his mother's life. Um, his mother was the dominant figure in his life and he actually told lots of her stories in his short stories. So I acknowledge, I acknowledge his role as a short storyteller. Um, uh, and I think his short stories um, are brilliant, but I think his poetry was more influential in forging an Australian identity. Um, mm. So, I tend to focus on his short stories where they deal with issues like mateship and the code of mateship, one of the themes in the book. But I think you get a broader sense of where Australian society was at through his poetry. Mm. The book also mentions the role of parliament and elections and civics in yep. society and how that works. And the question I wanted to ask was, um, it the importance of that, I imagine, in your mind, I could be wrong, has relevance yeah. to today and, and make people think, well, is this the is this the system we should have or should it, how else can you think about well, how yeah. else can you think about the political system? What are some what are your thoughts on that? Look, absolutely. I mean, and I draw lots of political parallels between, you know, political issues and institutions of the day and those of the past. What I would say is that Whilst Australian politicians were, by modern standards, imperfect in many respects, you know, they were racist, they were sexist, but then again, so was everybody else. In that sense, they represented their constituency. Um, but what made, what set Australia apart from many other nations was a focus on developing strong democratic institutions and locking them in place through a constitution. Now, the Australian constitution is very different from constitutions around the world. It, it barely touches on the rights of individuals and is, is dedicated almost entirely to the machinery of government. And institutions like parliament, institutions like the high court, um, um, these are incredibly important institutions that safeguard Australian democracy. And people of all political stripes, as Australia were being settled, were Democrats. They were passionate Democrats. They were into placing checks on author authoritarian government. Um, and so I think Australia actually today has a degree of robustness in its defences against authoritarianism because the institutions that were developed at the back end of the 19th century and the early 20th century were based on principles around the equality of man and woman, uh, uh, the equality of um, everybody having a right to, to have a say in the political process um, and ensuring that there were institutions in place that protected the citizenry from the abuses of their their rulers. So Australia, I think, more than any other Western society, developed and innovated um, institutions. First place in the world to establish an independent electoral commission, free of political interference, something that today would, would go down beautifully in America. Um, uh, the idea that senators should be directly elected by the people. Um, again, something that America picked up from Australia in one of its amendments that followed Australia's suit. We came up with the modern secret ballot. We came up with um, rules that enabled um, the deaf and the blind to vote. I mean, uh, democracy is, is Australia's greatest uh, and, and democratic institutions of Australia's greatest export to the world. And so this book is actually a story of that democratic success. Whether you like the politicians or not and the decisions they made, Australian institutions were, were world-leading and, and um, I think 
we owe a lot to those founding fathers and mothers of Australia. Mm. Now, some listeners to this podcast are based overseas. How would you explain to them their ability to approach this book knowing very little of Australia? Uh, yes. Um, uh, one of the things that I do is explain the origins of lots of Australian words and phrases. Australia has got a distinctive lingo um, and and so I often write um, with a degree of sort of Australian idiom, but I explain bits of that, I suppose, in the book. Australians have a love of contractions. So um, afternoon becomes avo, avocado becomes avo, garbage man becomes garbo. We like ending o or why on the end of words to make them shorter. And this became so much part of our language that then we started adding those letters onto the ends of the words to make them longer. So my name, Dave, would become Davo. Um, so Australian language is, is interesting. Um, and modern Australian politics, there are plenty of pl- references in, in my book to Australian popular culture. So... Um, uh, a foreign reader who's not deeply steeped in Australiana will not get every single reference. But that, at the end of the day, isn't important. Um, they might miss out on a footnote or two or three or four, but they'll get the overall flavour of Australian culture and Australian history um, and develop, I think, an appreciation for what became rapidly a unique language with a unique accent. And I explained some of the reasons why Australian language and the Australian accent and our desire to depart from aspects of British language and American language, um, those those are all sort of explained in the book with reference to those other dominant cultures. So um, I, think, I think foreign readers may not know about ALF from home and away, although our British friends will, um, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, they will get an appreciation of, of not just Australian history, but dare I say it, Australian culture. Yeah, fair enough. Now, two more questions. First mm. of all, the, and the answer to this might just be no, but mm. my one, one hunch I have from reading your book is there's some part of you that wants to write a book that deals with the history of animals in Australia. I say that for a couple <laughs> of reasons. Animals come up a fair bit in this. You, I think you compare um, the feminists once being set aside in Parliament because there was a bill about sparrows or something like that having to be mm, debated. Mm. You end the book with a reference to, I don't know if you do have a cat, but there's no cat apparently in your study. And throughout mm. the book you, you have these sections about plagues of animals and importing animals. Mm. So is, do animals have some – is there a history of animals in you? Uh, look, look, there there is, and, and other people have written histories of Australian animals. I think – when the first settlers came to Australia, they were encountered. They encountered a completely unique flora and fauna, um, and that that was influential in the way that Australia was settled and conceived. Um, indeed, um, it was Joseph Banks, the naturalist, who popularised the idea of uh, establishing a, a prison a colony, a convict colony in in Australia. Um, so. Australia's natural history um, informed the very settlement of Australia. It was obviously of incredible importance to the Indigenous people um, who, who lived with that environment and changed that environment over over tens of thousands of years. Um, but, but yeah, look, I'm interested in, in, in native animals, but one of the themes in this book is the introduction of European animals. So the greatest economic tragedy of the 19th century was the introduction of rabbits into Australia because they just wreaked absolute havoc. They bred like crazy. Um, Australian, you looked at the Australian countryside and it was a living furry carpet of rabbits at various stages. We've had similar issues with mice. Uh, We've had issues with foxes and cats. And so one of the stories I tell in this book is the story of the acclimatisation societies, people who wanted to bring foreign animals from other parts of the British Empire to to Australia and, and let them run wild. And that had disastrous um, impacts on the Australian economy. Um, and we see that with the cane toad 
you know, and uh, today. So, um, and and on the Australian ecosystem. So, um, animals do play an important part in Australian history. Um, uh, and and you know, I also look at horses and um, sheep and cattle. Uh, we were an agricultural. You know, we rode on the sheep's back. Australia becomes the richest place in the world with the highest standard of living, essentially off the fact that we are bloody good at, at, at breeding sheep. Um, so, yes, animals do play an important role in Australian history, and, you know, I quite like them personally. So, Yes, and um, finally, you the your biographical information in the book isn't heavy on PhD from here, there and everywhere. Um, uh, but no. when you read the book, it's plain that you know about what you're writing about. Is that a yeah. intentional aspect of your writing that you don't oh, no, want look, to? So my, sort of... my, no, look, I, 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 I was an excellent high school student in, in, in history. I, I did very well in my high school certificate uh, in ancient history. I was a sword and sandals historian. Um, after I went and studied law at, at Sydney University. Um, I was a lawyer and a sort of public servant and political staffer throughout my professional career. Um, so I never studied history at university, let alone uh, achieved a, a PhD. So I'm, I'm not Dr. Hunt. What I did realise is, is that history as an academic discipline doesn't require you to study it in a university, there is an incredible volume of material out there that basically enabled me, once I became interested in Australian history, to read it voraciously and study it voraciously. So, um, if you like, I am a a self-taught historian, um, but I think most historians, most Australian historians would acknowledge that I am an Australian historian, even though I am not uh, a refugee from the dusty halls of historic academia. No, well, that's good to know. That's um, that's refreshing. Well, um, thank you, David, for your time. The book once again is Girt Nation. It's published published by Black Ink. It's written by David Hunt. It has a magpie. Um, doing an indiscretion on Alfred Deacon's head, I think, on the front cover, mm. um, and it's a, it's it will stand out in bookstores and it's worth reading. So thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you very much, Babe. Thank you for your time.